Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Let's talk about cramming. Um, you and I know our sport, the game of ice hockey, pretty well. Mm-hmm. Well enough to write about it, well enough to talk about it on this podcast and on television. But when you're at the worldwide leader in all of sports, like we are at ESPN, occasionally opportunities arise in which you need to not only talk about hockey, but other things. Like, for example, when Emily Kaplan appears on Around the Horn on Friday as a panelist. Wow, I got so many points already. Thanks, guys. What, um, tell me, tell me about cramming because you and I, uh, when you, when you're, when you're covering one sport, you kind of have to keep your blinders on Mm -hmm. and maybe you know about your, another sport. Like, like I could fake it about like the NFL because I'm a Jets fan and I've Mm -hmm. been paying attention. But if like I went in around the horn and all of a sudden they're like, tell me about the nuances of the Nuggets Portland series, I would be like, the who and the what now? So what are you doing? How are you getting prepared for your big debut on around the horn? You know what, Greg? This is a huge moment for me because I was this close to being a cord cutter. I'm moving this summer and I'm like, you know what? I don't need cable anymore. And then this past week, I found myself DVRing every single basketball game and watching them all day. And now I don't know if I can do that anymore. So that's what my life has been like the past week. It's been awesome. To me, the biggest thing about going on these shows from an outsider's perspective, obviously you're now on the inside, so you can tell me if I'm wrong or not, but you just have to be, you just have to speak with conviction. You know, you know, just have a take and then believe in that take. And even if you're maybe wrong or, you know, you're talking about a player that retired five years ago, at least, at the very least, you'll sound like you know what you're talking about. You know what? Since this is a safe space, I'm going to try out my spiciest take that I don't know if I'm uh, allowed to say on TV or not. But, you know, I'm watching that game last night, uh, Mm -hmm. Golden State Warriors, and I see Kevin Durant leave with a calf strain. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm here on Twitter today reading Sean Shapiro's tweet. Rupe Hintz played Game 7 with a broken foot. Jan Mark broke foot back in February and March and kept getting aggravated. Zuccarello break was healed, but tendons were struggling and got injections before each game. And I have to wonder, are NBA guys really weak? Who's to say? Not. I think that you have an obligation to finish every one of your answers on Around the Horn with, please like my sport. Just whatever you say. <laughs> Just end it with please like my sport. The only, the only, the uh, only criticism I think I'll find is if I throw in a, like a lower body, upper body injury joke in there. That's the only <laughs> way we're inferior in any any capacity. Well, you're awesome. You deserve this, and you're gonna kill it. And uh, and it's awesome that everybody uh, is is so tuned in for this. When you put this out on Twitter, like the entirety of the of the sports world was like, go get him, girl. Go get him, tiger. So it's awesome. All right. ESPN on ice this week. We have some really cool guests. We have Chris Peters on to talk about the making of the Carolina Hurricanes. We have Francesca Vangel on to speak about Pat Maroon. She's Pat Maroon's fiance. And uh, obviously with Pat's game winning goal, series winning goal against the Dallas Stars, uh, we get an inside look about the dynamics uh, behind the scenes with him and his family, and also a little bit of life as a uh, hockey uh, partner. So it's pretty cool stuff there. All that and more on this episode of ESPN on Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on Ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Hey, everybody. It's ESPN on Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. That's right. ESPN talks about hockey. 
Do you know that I just straight up mute everybody who says that, who makes that joke? I just mute them. I just find it to be so hacky at this point in our existence at this at this network. I yeah, there was once or twice I tried to fight it, and it's so triggering. It's it's it's, mutable. it's not even not even triggering. It's just lame at this point. Yeah, so yeah, I just, yeah, I just, yeah, It's 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 an instant mute for me. If you if if you and I no longer converse on Twitter. Uh, it may be because you've made the hacky ESPN hockey joke that we make at the beginning of every podcast. Anyway, I'm Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter at ESPN. At ESPN, where they cover hockey. Um, we're going to cover hockey right now. Uh, Eastern Conference playoffs. You were at the Columbus-Boston uh, series. Uh, you know... I see that Columbus has taken flack for the all-in thing only resulting in a sixth, uh, six-game defeat in the second round. The, the bar was set at win more than three games, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the first round, um, or win at least three games in the first round. I, 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 I hearken back to when we had John Davidson on this very podcast recently where he said, you know what, the all-in thing, we did that as a calculated move because we believe that we have enough on this roster to stay competitive. Uh, beyond this season, mm-hmm. and it was the right decision based on the talent that we already had on the roster to try to go all in. I agree with that. I think that they have nothing to be ashamed of. They shot their shot. They went farther than they ever had as a franchise. Will they ever be able to place, replace Panarin? Not in the near future. It's a huge loss. Um, but, uh, but I think that they deserve more praise than they're getting for having done what they did, not only in eliminating the Lightning, but also in uh, trying to make the most of this opportunity and almost getting there. I'm totally with you. Look, you hear Yarmo Kikalainen say there's no participation trophy for the second round. Uh, and you see the shirts that they were giving out to fans for, you know, two straight games. It's that the first round was not the goal. But let's be honest, it was the goal. You got to get past the first round. It was a psychological hump this team couldn't get over. They needed to do everything they could just to get there. And now it's not a big deal anymore. So, yeah, I'm with you. I think I'm still applauding them. I'm probably applauding them 12 months from now. I think they did the right thing. I do think that an underrated aspect of this is they do have a very good core that's not just Bob and Bread. I mean, if you look at the best defensemen in these playoffs – I would put Seth Jones right up there. Uh, Zach Wierenski mm-hmm. is very good. Pierre-Luc Dubois took a ton of steps this year uh, to mm-hmm. be the true top line forward that they believed he could be. Uh, there's, there's a lot there. So I'm excited about their future. I'm, I'm sad, though, that this was the end. Yes, for Panarin, but especially for Bob. I fell mm-hmm. in love with Sergei Bobrovsky's personality in the series. He was so sweet and tender when he talked to the media. My favorite thing about him, this is just like a little inside Usually when guys do their scrums, they do it at their locker stall. You go and you sit and you wait for them to take off whatever, and then you go. Bob will just walk out from the shower wherever he is, and he's wearing like his little do-rag that's apparently new this year and a hood. And he (laughs) stands in the middle right by the logo and just like nods, come to me, and just does a scrum in the middle of the locker room. It's the most amazing thing. Um, before the show, you were telling me that you had another adventure in Artemi Panarin's uh, Mastery of the English Language. Yeah, so look. When I first took this job, I went to Columbus Blue Jackets training camp, and I wanted to talk to Artemi Panarin. Patrick Kane had told me a story about him, and I wanted to fact check it to see if it was true. And he tries to do the whole thing. Don't speak English. And I'm like, all right, I know you speak English. I'm going to try to speak English with you and let it be known. He understood what I was saying and could converse back. Now, Artemi doesn't – and I understand – look, I want to be sensitive here. When English isn't your first language, um, it's difficult to do a whole interview in that language. I want to be sensitive to that. That said, I do think he masks it and hides it a bit because uh, he does this huge scrum after they lose game seven, which he rarely does. And he has a Russian interpreter, uh, mm-hmm. a Russian reporter who uses interpreter. And, you know, 
Panarin would look at the person answering the question. The guy would speak in Russian. Gartem would speak back in Russian. The guy would speak in English. And then finally at the end, I think it was Dan Rosen of NHL.com goes, Artemi, would you consider coming back to Columbus? And Artemi just looks at him in the eye, starts giggling, shrugs, and goes, nobody knows, and walks away. <laughs> We're all like, you understood us the whole time. You could have done this whole thing. It reminds me of when I when I was at Puck Daddy early on, and uh, Dmitry Chesnikov uh, used to write for us, and he he was brilliant. He was he was a R- Russian language reporter. He and I used to work together on crafting these Q and As with Russian players, and we'd be in the Capitals locker room, and, and Alexander Semin at the time was with the Capitals, and uh, there'd be like an interpreter there. Uh, you know, Semin would be would be talking to us in Russian, and and the interpreter would uh, be telling us what he allegedly said. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it'd be a constant thing where like uh, someone would ask a question, the interpreter would interpret it for Semin. Semin would answer, the interpreter would say something like, "He says, you know, they, they play well, but uh, you know, we play better." And and Dimitri would just kind of nudge me and say, "That's not what he said." <laughs> it's like an SNL skit sometimes, where like the guy has like a twenty nine word answer, and then he's like, right. he said he is sad." Yeah, he's so sad, right? Um, so Columbus goes out. That's that's a, a good run for them. Boston advances. Um, lost lost in the praise for Tuka Rask, who we're going to talk to uh, Linda Cohen about a little bit later on the show, um, and the praise that uh, obviously the Marchand and Pasternak's and, and uh, Bergerons have gotten is the play of David Krejci, who I think has been a huge, huge key for this team uh, and his ability to uh, create offense away from the top line. That's really the, the whole game, I think, for this Boston team, is we know what the top liners can do, um, and uh, it's going to be contingent on the, the Krejci's and the Coils uh, and the uh, DeBrusques of the world to uh, really kind of uh, make up the difference offensively, especially against the Carolina team that's really, really deep. But... Um, Turning our attention to this series, uh, we had to make some picks on it. I took the Bruins. I took them in seven. Uh, I think Carolina is going to give them a hell of a series. I do think that Carolina is the better team five on five mm-hmm. and only getting better as they get healthier. But I do think that there is a distinct special teams advantage for the Boston Bruins in this series, provided, of course, that they get power play opportunities, which, as we know in these playoffs, is always a bit of a specious proposition given the quality of the officiating. But I think that when it comes down to it, uh, it those departments and then maybe uh, if Tukarask can have, uh, you know, five-sixths of the series that he had against the Columbus Blue Jackets, uh, the Bruins have enough to advance to the Stanley Cup final. I'm with you. I think um, five on five, you're right. I think there could be an advantage there for the Hurricanes. Um, that Their blue line? far more talented and deep than uh, Boston's is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, I want to point out that Brandon Carlo, if you've watched him in these playoffs, is turned into a bona fide stud. He's mm-hmm. incredible. He is Boston's best defender by far. And and I, I think, you know, just having a guy like that uh, alleviates some of the loss of, of losing Charlie McAvoy for a game. And I'm in on Tuka Rask. I, I think there's so many people wondering when the other shoe is going to drop, but he was lights out for the last four games of that uh, Columbus Blue Jackets series. He had a 955 save percentage at five on five in those last four mm. games. That's insane. Uh, he's locked in. You need a hot goaltender. You need stars who can take over a game. Boston has both of those. And you know what? I'm really sorry to everybody else who's not from Boston, doesn't root for Boston, but the year of the champions continues. I, I see them going on to the Stanley Cup final. The McAvoy play is interesting. I think there's actually some shared DNA between that play and the Ben Bishop play in which they didn't whistle down uh, the play for in, an injury. Uh, in both cases, it was a study of nuance from the rule book. In the McAvoy case, we all learned there is no major penalty for an illegal check to the head. Who knew <laughs> until that very moment? And then everybody was kind of screaming for there, it to have been a match penalty. 
you can't hand out a match penalty in that situation. There is no intent to injure. It is a hockey play gone wrong. You're never going to be able to sell the idea that McAvoy is looking to uh, smack uh, Josh Anderson in the head at that point. He's just trying to check him in that situation. So there, there is no... There's no way a match penalty would have been appropriate in that situation. A major potentially, but not a match. And then in the Bishop situation, I know that Dallas Stars fans are pissed off beyond belief that they didn't whistle that play down. Uh, the rule is that uh, the referees can whistle a play down when the other team has possession of the puck for, you know, kind of a severe injury or, in a, you know, that kind of situation. And that usually means blood. That usually means someone being knocked out. Uh, at that point in the game, you're going to need an MRI machine on the ice to figure out what the hell's going on with Bishop. Uh, so I can't follow the referees there. I thought in both cases, the on-ice officials made the right calls based on what the rule book says. Uh, but in both cases, I think you can, you know, maybe take a look at the rule book and say, well, is the rule book actually where it should be on these things? Well, between that and the, uh, lovely offsides play we oh, got yeah. in the Avalanche game. I think uh, people are going to be calling for a total uh, rewrite of that rule book. <laughs> Sometimes a, re- a revision of the rule book, a, a top to bottom rewrite. Uh, that's fine with me. We'll talk about the offside later on. We we'll talk about the Western Conference, but uh, yeah, I, I think uh, it should be a fun series. Which uh, which Carolina player do you think Brad Marchand will terrorize the most in hmm. this series, and is it Sebastian Ajo? <laughs> I don't think so. You know what? I think it could be Sveshnikov because he was clearly irking. And, and doing something on the ice to Alex Ovechkin, which uh, mm-hmm. instigated that fight. He's a little bit of a guy that likes to get in your face. And if they're on the ice at the same time, I could see them butting heads. Mm-hmm. It should be you? a fun – I, 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 I still think it's going to be maybe Ajo, maybe Terry Dougie, Dougie's my dark horse. God, the Dougie Hamilton aspect of the series is so funny. I mean, like, you know – Everybody, everybody kind of knows that it's a cultural thing is one of the reasons why the Bruins got rid of him. Uh, I don't know if museums were part of that equation or not, but this, they always talked about the money being the thing, but it was more than the money. It was just the way he played. Uh, so him getting another crack at, at this team is, is fascinating. Um, I don't know. There's a lot, like, of, that, a lot of dynamics here. That, yeah. A lot of dynamics here to make this, this series really interesting. Uh, but ultimately I think the Bruins might be just a little bit better. All right. Let's talk more about the Carolina Hurricanes with our good friend. Chris Peters. Joining us now on the line is our good friend Chris Peters, our colleague at ESPN. His adventures overseas have come to an end, right? You're not going overseas again anytime I, soon. Yeah, for now. <laughs> okay. Um, at World Championships and such. And uh, we wanted to have you on, Chris, because you wrote a piece about the making of the Carolina Hurricanes, who, of course, are in the Eastern Conference Final against the Boston Bruins. What did you what did you discover in your uh, dissection of how the Hurricanes were built uh, about what this team is? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting and they they were a great candidate to kind of do this. We wanted to do a deep dive kind of a player by player look at how a team was built and and really it turned out that the Hurricanes were the, the most unique option and part of it is because let's look at the guys that they've traded away in recent years and it's like Jeff Skinner, Noah Hannafin, Elias Lindholm, uh, even going back to Eric Stahl, and all those guys are top 10, you know, top five picks in the NHL draft, and they still manage to have a largely homegrown roster of guys that they've drafted and then just made some really creative trades and free agent signings that over, over the course of three different general managers that has kind of brought us to this point. And it's, you know, this has been a team that's been kind of running in place for a lot of years, and obviously this is, uh, it's been a long time since they made the playoffs. But 
what really stood out to me was was the fact that you know they hit so many home runs in the mid rounds, like a Jacob uh, Slavin, uh, Slavin, and uh, Sebastian Ajo was a second round pick. You know, I mean, these are guys that are, are are hugely important pieces to their roster, and they they managed to find them in the later rounds that made guys like Jeff Skinner and and Noah Hannafin and Elias Lindholm expendable, and, and it allowed them to take chances because they had so much success in the mid rounds. So one of the big stats that sticks out to me about this Carolina Hurricane team is that they're spending only about 78% of the cap, which is the lowest by far of any conference finalist in the last eight years. What do you attribute the biggest reason why they've been able to do that and find the success? Well, I think part of it is that, you know, that ability to have a homegrown roster of, of players that, that you've kind of cultivated and guys like Warren Fogle have come in off of, you know, on, on, on entry level deals and or, or on second contracts and those are typically smaller contracts and then they're not spending a ton of money on goaltending. We know that they've stashed Scott Darling in the AHL and that was a, a big ticket contract for that team, but you know, Peter Mrazek's at one point five million, they managed to get Curtis McElhenney off of waivers. You know, so that's big savings right there. And that that's a huge help to them. Um, they didn't spend and haven't really been able to lure a lot of big ticket free agents over the years. Um, you know, I think maybe Alex Semin a few years back was, was <laughs> one of their biggest biggest purchases. But but you know, Justin Williams is four and a half million per season, and and even Calvin DeHaan, they were able to give him term, and and he's he's kind of a depth defenseman for them right now. Uh, but those are the types of free agents that they went after, as opposed to you know spending big money on on guys from outside of their organization and. And the reason they're able to do that again comes back to the success at the draft table and the and the ability to to get so many guys and, and have so many hits. Even um, you know like a, like a Brock McGinn, who's a second round draft pick, like he's not a star on that team, but he's a affordable depth. And he was you know a second round draft pick in a year when they didn't have a first round pick. If you can get an everyday player beyond the first round, you're you're doing great. So that's yeah. that's kind of a guy that that helps you a lot and, and keeps costs down as well. I also really found it interesting about them, the fact that they, you know, for years when they would be at the top of the league in puck possession and, and not be qualifying for the playoffs, we were always like, well, obviously what they need to do is deal from their stacked depth on the blue line to get themselves some more offensive players and, and do that that way. Not only did they not trade any of their defensemen for straight-up offensive players, they made the Hannafin trade, which was defense for defense in some ways. They even added to it with DeHaan and with Van Riemsdyk. And I always found that to be really interesting that they didn't succumb to the, what I think would be conventional wisdom of, of breaking up that group to satisfy the offensive needs. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that because I, you look at a guy like Justin Falk's name always comes up in, in trade rumors and different things as, as the, you know, the probably most expendable guy, but he's such an important part of that team and he's, he's been with this team through thick and thin and has gone through the struggles and, and is, is a, a real quality defenseman. Again, another second-round draft pick. He was, he was the third defenseman picked off of his own team that draft season and you know managed to play over 500 NHL games and appeared in the Olympics. I mean, this is a player that, that helps them win. And, and then you have guys that are like the non-conventional modern-day defensemen like a Brett Pesci or, or, or Jacob Slavin, and those are the two guys that, that can – you know, really play a ton of minutes for you and, and then adding Dougie Hamilton to, to add a more offensive element to your blue line, uh, just helps. So yeah, I mean, so many teams now are, are just holding on to their defensemen because we, we hear all the time how hard they are to get. 
And I think it was great patience on behalf of Ron Francis and then Don Waddell after him uh, to to stick with that core and say this is these are the guys that we're going to ride with, and they've largely rewarded them this season. So the biggest issue affecting this team going forward is, as you mentioned, they tend not to go and spend a ton of money on free agents. They got to pay Sebastian Ajo and hopefully pay him what he's Ooh. worth. But you have to wonder uh, they're probably going to want to restock from within. Where does the Carolina Hurricanes prospect pool rank among the other teams? And uh, who do you, who are you excited about or who are you not excited about? It, it's, it's actually really solid right now. Um, and that's, that's again, a testament to the draft. And, you know, they, they, they hit a home run with uh, Andre Svechnikov. Couldn't go wrong at number two there. Um, he was the consensus number two guy. But in previous drafts, they have Martin Nechas, who is a, a fantastic prospect, who's really coming into his own with the Charlotte Checkers right now. He, he was sent back to the Czech Republic last year, played professionally there, um, you know, was expected to probably compete for a roster spot this year, wasn't quite ready, and has kind of had a, a slow build to his season. He didn't have a great World Juniors, but over the second half of the season, you know, he's, to me, you know, he's a top 15 prospect in the NHL right now. Um, a guy who's had a really resurgent season is defenseman Jake Bean. Again, another defenseman, just, just kind of keep filing them right through. Jake Bean has, has been a top performer in the AHL this year. It's his first full professional season. I was starting to kind of get down on him a little bit after junior, but we've seen him just continue to mature and, and, and find his game. He's got some great offensive abilities. Um, you know, even uh, in goal, Alex Nedeljkovic is, is a solid goaltender who's played in the AHL. He's, you know, a draft pick of theirs as well. And, and it's, you know, he's, he's, maybe he's not a number one guy down the road, but if he's their backup, that's another internal ad that can be pretty affordable for you. Um, and then, you know, right now they're, the Charlotte Checkers are, are having a fantastic playoff run, and that's only going to help the NHL team later on. So there's going to be depth guys that can come up from that, like Warren Fogle did this year. Uh, Alexi Sorella is a guy that is a name that we should hear more coming up as well as, as a guy who he played in one playoff game already. So the, the Hurricanes have layers. That's the, that's the best part about this run for them is that this doesn't have to be the end. This is, there is a lot of uh, room to grow within the, with, with the prospects they do have. And, and they're a team that does not often get mentioned as a solid drafting team. But they, and part of it's probably because they always have high draft picks. So it's, it's easy. <laughs> you, know, you, should, you should do well when you have high draft picks. But they don't miss very often in the first round. And they and they find guys in, in the mid rounds and sometimes that's just a luck and, and, and that's you know, the even scouts will admit it. Sometimes you just gotta get lucky in the mid rounds like like getting Jacob Slavin in the fourth round. So I mean that's that's kinda where the, the hurricanes have been building and they're gonna be able to restock the cupboard and, and be able to afford that Sebastian Ajo ticket because they're gonna have some guys on entry level deals as soon as next season. Finally, um, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you about the draft. That is your expertise, of course. <laughs> What's your current top five for the the NHL entry draft? Um, oh boy! Well, that, yeah, that you know, it's, it's Jack Hughes number one, evolving, but <laughs> but since I since I just wrote about it this week, uh, and it hasn't changed in the last few days at least, but it's it's constantly evolving. Um, number one, Jack Hughes, still there. Capo Caco at number two. Those two guys are in a class of their own and, and in a tier of their own. I think there's a pretty substantial drop. Not not necessarily. It's just that those guys are so good. I think the players that are after them are, are really good too. But there's not much consensus in terms of the next several guys. But my top five includes Kirby Doc of the Saskatoon Blades right now, a big centerman who, who's a great playmaker. 
Alex Turcotte, another solid playmaking center, kind of has more of a two-way game, plays very fast out of the national team development program. He was pretty much the number two center behind Jack Hughes and would be a number one center on most teams in, in, in junior hockey. And then number five, the controversial pick, it's Cole mm. Caulfield, the five foot seven sniper. There he is. Two goals this year. Um, I am probably on a limb on that one because of the size, but if you go back to Alex Dabrinkit's draft, 39th overall, how many teams would rather have a 40-goal scorer in their lineup right now than some of the guys they picked way ahead of him? I think that Cole Caulfield is on the same trajectory and, and is a, such an elite scorer that I just can't see how you pass up when, when a guy's elite tool is scoring, how you pass that up no matter how big he is. Get right, that Chris, kid to Edmonton. Before you go, I just got to ask you real quick. Who do you have at three at Chicago because so much of the draft tension is on that? Sorry, say that again, Emily. Sorry. Who do you have at number three for Chicago? Uh, well, right now it's Kirby Doc, but I mean, I think Chicago can go in any direction. So my number three is Kirby Doc, but for them, there's Bowen Byram, the great defenseman out of the Vancouver Giants. There's Vasily Podkolzin, a solid winger from Russia. And I, I think as Stan Bowman's going to keep people guessing, and, and they're going to set the tone for the rest of the draft because obviously everybody knows who's going one and two. Hmm. I say he uh, trades the pick along with Brent Seabrook's contract to just get it off the books. That's my Ooh. prediction. No, wow. I'm kidding. Of course, that, it's not going to happen. Now that would be that would be spicy. <laughs> All right, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us, man. As always, the best stuff from your brain is always uh, a welcome addition to this podcast. So uh, we'll talk down the line. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, our thanks to Chris. You know, we've had him on before, and we're probably going to have him on again. And you know, I've done this before, and I'm going to do it again. It's your official get your gift alert. <laughs> Mother's Day is Sunday. This Sunday, May 12th, huh. everybody. Oh, I got to send a card. Yeah. If this reminder gets you a little anxious, as it has to Greg, because you don't know what you're going to get your moms in your life besides a card, then join the club. Luckily, Edible.com has you covered. Edible arrangements can make anything from chocolate dipped strawberry boxes and all the way to handcrafted fruit arrangements. They're delicious, easy to share, and they bring people together. Not to mention, Edible only uses high-quality ingredients. So no matter what you get, it'll be made with the freshest fruit available and dipped in rich, indulgent chocolate. Ooh. With Mother's Day's themed arrangements and fruit boxes, it's a gift that's going to be remembered forever. Mm. Again, Sunday, May 12th. Don't get caught scrambling for a gift last minute. Order your gift online at edible.com and have it delivered. Or stop by a store for same-day pickup. It's that easy. But it hasn't been that easy for either the St. Louis Blues or San Jose Sharks this year because they've both faced credible adversity and they've both shown incredible resiliency. And that's why they're in the Western Conference Finals. Isn't that right, Greg? <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, the Western Conference Finals is fascinating. The Blues and the Sharks. Um, I was at the game last night, Game 7, between the Sharks and the Colorado Avalanche. Might as well touch on that first. Uh, there was an air of inevitability, I think, at this game last night. Um, you know, I, I didn't think for a moment the Sharks weren't going to win it. And that has a lot to do with the game being at home. That has a lot to do with the dynamics of the series dramatically changing because of the uh, return of Joe Pavelski to the lineup. And you saw that immediately in the first uh, period with him scoring a goal and assisting on Hurdle's goal. Uh, Colorado made it interesting. Uh, I think it would have been even more interesting if Nathan McKinnon didn't uh, hurt his shoulder in the first period, which was a huge bummer. Um, of course, he says that they just shot him up with something and he got back out there. And his coach says that he would have to be taken out on a stretcher to not play in the game. Uh, so kudos to the Sharks. I, that's a solid win. Uh, Martin Jones was good when they needed him to be. 
and and they advance and and there this series is going to be super fascinating um you know Bennington for me with the blues is is a huge x factor insofar as his ability to take over games um i think both teams have a lot of depth up front i think they've got a lot of talent on the back end uh it is going to be a brutal series i think it's going to be a battle of two four checks a lot of times in the series and uh the the potential for there to be some drama in the series as far as the physicality goes uh, is pretty high. So it's going to be a really good Western Conference final, I think. I agree. Um, I, I think the goaltending matchup, as we'll talk about with Linda in a second, uh, is going to be fascinating. Um, you know, Martin Jones has written his redemption tour. Uh, it almost feels to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, because you've been around this team, that both of these, you've been around the Sharks, and I feel that both of these teams feel that they're a team of destiny. You know, as we talked to Francesca, it's like all the pieces are coming into place for the St. Uh, St. Louis Blues after yeah. so many years of heartbreak. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, after a year where they started the season playing like, let's face it, crap, uh, and and you know, rising from the ashes, and they've got their chief Craig Berube leading the way, mm-hmm. uh, and the Sharks too. I mean, it feels like they really want to win one for Jumbo Joe and the possibility, the tantalizing possibility that he could face Boston Bruins in the Stanley Cup final is just amazing storyline wise. Yeah, yeah, and in both cases they've got they've got they're kind of similar in the sense that like, you know, weird stuff has happened, the bishop mm-hmm. play that we talked about before uh, allowing the the Blues to to come back in game 6. Obviously in both game 7 some weird stuff happened f- to benefit the Sharks. And they've also both had this thing where they uh have had it almost like a different hero every game. You know, sometimes for the Sharks it's been Sometimes it's been Hurdle. Other times it's been Jones. Uh, for the Blues, you've had the Schwartz games. You've had Tarasenko popping off earlier in the Dallas series. You had Maroon a couple times. You had Bennington. It's it's been really fun to see both of these teams not just be your like prototypical one line and a goalie kind of teams. They've they've really had performances throughout the lineup, uh, which is going to make it very interesting. The offside play in Game Seven between Colorado and um, and San Jose. That's a tough one, man. Um, I, I give San Jose's video guy, Dandaro, huge credit for yeah. being the only guy apparently in the world to spot that Linus Cog was still on the ice when the puck re-entered the zone. A couple things I hate about this. Uh, one, um, when a, when a guy isn't material to being, to there being a too many men on the ice penalty because he's sort of like a, a, a non-playable character at that point because he's just going off on a change and yet he can be whistled for being offside. On a play like that, it's kind of a contradiction in the rule book that I think needs to be resolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that I really hated about it was that once again, we have a situation where the camera is on one end of the ice, Lannis Cog's on the other end of the ice, and we are once again using inferior technology, pixelated shots to see where his skate is vis-a-vis the blue line, because I don't think I saw a definitive look that told me that that guy wasn't on the blue line. I mean, it, it was close enough to where you're just kind of like, if you squint, you're like, eh? They get the call right? I don't know. And even Landis Cog, in taking the blame for changing so slowly and putting Captain himself should. offside, yeah, as he should, he kind of even said, well, I hope they got it right. Because I don't even think he knows if they got it right. So the other thing about it, too, is that, as you know, I'm a huge advocate for expanding replay. I think, you know, using it for major penalties, using it for high sticking, it's only going to benefit the league to get these calls right. I could really do without it for offside, man. I think that the ship has sailed. We we put it in place because Matthew Shane was a country mile offside one game. We didn't want to see that happen again. The technology's never been good enough for it to happen. And the, those situations that we have where they whistle a play down for an offside, like 40 seconds after it happens mm-hmm. and the other team has ample time to clear the zone, it's just nonsense. I, I would love for there to be 
a reconsideration of the application of, of the video review for offside. I think it's been deleterious to the game. And um, although it benefited the Sharks in a big way last night, I think we could all agree that uh, the application of it and that rule was taking what should have been a good goal off the board. Yeah, you know, I think that's so telling that the on-ice official didn't call for anything right away because it wasn't material to the play. Like, he wasn't, he couldn't have contributed anyway. But there's just such a rich irony in the fact that all postseason we've been talking about these officials and maybe a little bit of incompetency or inconsistency. And finally, they go exactly as the rule book uh, prescribes them to go. And we're (laughs) like, this is wrong. The other thing too is that just like I don't know, man. It's it's a tough look, um, but it's fine. They're they're gonna they're gonna call what they call, and you know the officiating has has had horrible moments, like the uh, the Cody Eakin major in the Vegas and, and San Jose game, and there have been other times when they've gotten the call right, and it's been the rule book that's been the problem. Um, but uh, if you're an Avalanche fan, I think you have a right to be a little bit cheesed off about the way things worked out last night. Um, the Sharks and the Blues, what was your pick on this uh, series? I don't think I've made a formal pick as we do this podcast, but I guess we'll make one now. Yeah, I picked the Blues in seven. I have so much more Ooh. trust in Bennington uh, than I do in Martin Jones. I think when I looked at that game seven that the Blues played against the Stars, the amount of sustained pressure they were able to generate against Ben Bishop, and Ben Bishop stood on his head and was able to you know, limit to them to one goal in regulation, I just don't think Martin Jones has that. I really don't, and I think... They can generate that. And I think their third line is something really special. That Pat mm. Maroon, Bozak. Bozak's a guy who, like, you never really notice him at center. He's not flashy, but he does all these little things to make his wingers better. And mm. Robert Thomas, who's really turning into a stud. So I yeah. really like this team. I think their blue line, their defensive structure is strong enough to slow down those uh, Sharks forwards, except maybe not Hurdle because he's just a ninja turtle. And then <laughs> – and, and, you know, not to heap too much praise on Doug Armstrong, uh, cause I've already done that a lot this season, but Thomas was one of the guys that the Sabres wanted in the O'Reilly trade, and they said, no way, and mm-hmm. you can see why. He's Great a special point. player, and he, and he played really well. I, I'd taken the Sharks in seven, uh, I actually just went back and saw that I did make the formal pick already on ESPN.com. Uh, Sharks in seven, I am just super blown away by their ability to find ways to win. Uh, I think Jones, is can be a liability, but I also think that they have found ways to reduce the opportunities opponents have to score on the rush. Uh, I think they have definitely played much better around his crease than they had in the first round. And um, I can't. I know that there's been some real special moments for the Blues, but there's been like supernaturally good moments for the, the Sharks. The Pavelski injury, Pavelski's comeback the nonsense with the offside Mm -hmm. in game seven like there are forces beyond our recognition emily that are forcing the san jose sharks through these this western conference bracket and uh and i think they're gonna go all the way to the cup final against the boston bruins giving us that joe thornton versus the bruins boss boss battle that and you know he's gonna score four goals in uh, game one game seven Mm, even better seven against the bruins even yes, better. The, the, four, the fourth goal is the cup-winning goal. Oh, my gosh. And that skate, when he skates the cup, buck naked. My God. It's going to be the greatest moment in hockey history. All right. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's actually talk to uh, Francesca now to learn more about the, uh, the behind-the-scenes of the Pat Maroon hero moment. And now joining us is a special guest, Francesca Vengel. She is the fiancé of Pat Maroon, but she's also probably the first lady of St. Louis these days. Francesca, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be on. (laughs) 
So I just have to ask you, you said you are pretty tired right now. What have the last two days been like for you and your family? Oh, my gosh. Tired is an understatement. Um, hardly, hardly have slept. Um, it's been really exciting. Still not satisfied. Um, <laughs> halfway there. Got a long way to go. But it's been really exciting and fun. Plus, our family and especially Patrick and his son Anthony. It was a really cool moment. Are you, are you sick of Gloria yet? I'm actually not sick of Gloria. So, Y98, which is a local radio station here, played it for 24 straight hours yesterday. <laughs> and I just thought that was such like a, I don't know, it was so great. But I mean, I think the entire city was listening to Y98. Listening <laughs> over and over. I don't know. I mean, I think it's truly being played in every school. It's stuck in everyone's head. I mean, it's certainly stuck in my head, probably your heads as well. I mean, it's pretty cool that something like that started. I think it was Philly it started with a couple of the guys, and I don't know. It's really carried over, but it's been it's been something really cool for the city to get behind the team and, you know, play it after wins. So I'm, I'm into the Gloria. That's awesome. I love so to take hear us it. take us through the emotions of watching that game seven. Um, one, it kind of felt like one of those games where St. Louis was going to pour it on and pour it on and pour it on, and then get like a bad bounce and lose the game. Like every hockey fan has seen that scenario before. But the emotions of of standing there and watching that game and just seeing uh, how tense it got uh, as it went into overtime and such. Oh my gosh, the whole game. I mean. You got to give it up to Ben Bishop, who's also a St. Louis. He's just incredible. I mean, Dallas is best player the entire series. He's so good, and I think a lot of St. Louis people root for Ben. Um, I'm certainly one of them that root for Ben, except you know this situation. I <laughs> wanted it to go the other way, but I mean, he was so incredible, and you knew you were going to have to face him, and he's going to be so good. And the entire game, I mean. Honestly, so I was trying to stay calm. I'm not a very calm person. If you know me personally, I'm a little, you know, I'm very vocal. I I can't really calm myself, easily, but I was trying to just breathe through that whole game. Um, I mean, the, the Blues played so good. But, yeah, honestly, in my head the whole time, trying to get it out, I'm like, they're just going to get a bad bounce. I mean, there's like 40,000 shots on goal against Bishop and he's just sitting on his head. I mean, what, like, this needs to end our way. Like, I honestly, I don't even know what I was thinking. I think as it went into overtime, I was so mad. I'm like, how dare they do that to us? How dare they? Like, <laughs> me being like, thinking they're trying to go into overtime. I don't know. We were all sitting there. I sit with Nina O'Reilly, um, Billy Bozak, Kelsey Shen, and, and Anthony, Pat's son. And I think we all, I don't know, I don't even know if we talked that whole time, like we were chewing our nails. Every, it was, it was. I don't even know. I can't even describe the feeling. But I I honestly blacked out, I think. I can't even, like, an out-of-body experience, actually. Like, I was pinching myself, like, is this real? What is going on? It was you know, you're exhausted emotionally after watching that. And it's like, how am I, like, who am I to say that I'm exhausted? These guys are literally <laughs> throwing their bodies out. But, I mean, it was so 
incredible. I mean, we were just, I don't even, I don't know if we could have had one more minute in us to sit there and survive it, (laughs) like, at all. (laughs) So, but, I mean, it was, it was super emotional. I think we all, you know, Anthony just started cracking. I think that he was sitting next to, you know, five women who were emotional wrecks and, you know, he, him being 10 years old, he's just in school watching the game, analyzing the game. And then I think because of all of our emotions, when his dad scored the goal, it carried over to him and he just like exploded. So he started crying and then everyone around us started crying. I think, you know, the fans around knew that was his son. So it was, everyone just was extremely touched by it and just like how overcome he was with emotion. He was so happy. So it was a pretty cool moment, but like during the game, I mean, we were wrecks, absolute wrecks. And I'm sure, you know, I can speak for the other spouses of these players. I mean, it's it's so exciting, but I mean, wow, I mean, it's so so emotional as well. What was it like just to to witness all of that stuff in the post game with with Pat and Anthony? I mean, it's such a cool moment. I don't know if you remember. I think it was. Two years ago, Pat was playing for Edmonton, and we were in St. Louis. I always came back for those games because I just love watching him play against the Blues, and I love the Blues, being a fan growing up there. He scored that goal, and then Patrick saw his reaction, and he started crying. So it was just, do you remember that moment a couple years ago? He Pat saw his reaction when he scored uh, Anthony's excitement and it caused Pat to like break down in tears. Mm. So it was kind of like roles reversed. It was, I I don't, it's just like, you can't really write it better. You know, it, yeah. there's just, it, it happened exactly how it was supposed to happen. I mean, everything that he went through this season, all the ups and downs, the teams, all the ups and downs, like that's really, really been worth all the downs if that makes sense. So when I met you guys in October or September, it was right before the season, um, we were mm-hmm. talking so much about Pat's journey and how long it was. And, you know, when you started detailing every stop that he made and all the setbacks that he had to go to get to this point, you realized the tolls that it made on your family, um, your relationship, his relationship with Anthony. Can you just tell our readers, uh, our listeners, a little bit about that and, and, you know, the other side that maybe we don't see with these hockey players? We're always talking about transactions and trades and, and, you know, there's a really a human element to it. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think that's a part that people who aren't actually in the situation don't quite understand, and you can't blame them for it because it is so business on the other end of it. He's faced a lot of adversity, and he's always come out of it. He's really good with facing adversity. He works really hard, and, you know, he's played away from Anthony for nine years. So making the decision where he was going to play this year, I mean, that has a lot to do with it. And, you know, I just think he has been away for a long time. He's made tons of sacrifices and he chose to play here and he wanted to play close to home to be close to Anthony. And I mean, what an opportunity to be able to play for your hometown for a team that you visualize yourself playing for when you're four years old. And, you know, it It definitely, there's so much more that goes into it than just the business part, you know. And 
I don't know, it's kind of hard to explain like what you go through as a family and the emotions and the ups and the downs because the downs really suck and they suck for the family and you know, you have to be there for and it's not always sunshine for these athletes and I think that Pat's a perfect example of why it isn't always sunshine and rainbows but when it is sunshine and rainbows like moments in the playoffs this just it makes it all worth it if that makes sense am i making yeah. sense yeah. yeah oh totally what what were some of your lowest <laughs> points what what was hardest um well this year you know as a team they started out they had a lot of expectations and they were the team you know this team's going to just up and jump right to the playoffs and it wasn't like that i think they you know it took them a, a while to get playing. they were in last place I think was it like December January and you know a lot of people didn't believe in them anymore and you know they were down which makes all of us down and you know you try so hard to keep their heads up but it's it's hard and you know Patrick coming off a career season high career and then coming into playing for his hometown and not starting off well, I mean, that's, that was tough on him for sure, you know. But he never let himself get too down. He just kept, you know, one thing about him, he always believed in himself. He always, always believed in himself. And I give him so much credit. Like, I truly don't know if I could do that. It's just so crazy how, how this happens. Last one for us. Um, the, the the players' uh, wives, girlfriends, fiancés, partners – um, it's such a very interesting community, I think, for a lot of us kind of on the outside looking in. Um, we know that uh, you have an awesome lounge typically in these arenas to hang out in during the game if you want to. Badass jackets usually. And you have badass <laughs> jackets or sometimes matching hats. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that community is like and, and what it's meant for you to get that type of support um, from the, the Blues uh, community? Yeah, so... Being a hockey wife, spouse, girlfriend, partner, um, you know, you it's not always easy, but, you know, you move from team to team, you get traded. I mean, that part sucks for sure. You have to make new friends. You know, who, who are you going to gravitate to? Who's going to gravitate to you? Um, but one thing that I love about, like, the little community is we all really understand each other and what we all go through. Mm. Like, that's something we all have in common. And... I lean on my my hockey friends a lot when it comes to, you know, past career because they're probably the only friends that I have that will understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely love my hockey friends, and I'm sure I'm speaking for, like, everyone across the league. I mean, it's it's so important. You're Well, luckily I'm home, but I have been home the past five years. I've been California, Edmonton, New Jersey, and it's, you know, you're – away from home, you're away from friends and family, and you, you have these girls, and that's all you have, and it, you know, they become your family, and it's, they're there for ups and downs, understand you, you can, you know, you can mention them about, you know, maybe their guy had a terrible game, and they're sad about it, and you have to lift them up, and vice versa, and it's a really, really cool thing. I'm so grateful to have met so many great and wonderful, wonderful girls throughout Pat's career. So I would say they're really, it's really 
really important and they got support from those girls and it's something that you know you make lifelong friends with so it's really cool well, Francesca, we really appreciate you joining us, bringing a new voice to the podcast and uh, showing yeah. our listeners just another side of hockey life. So thank you for your time. And, you know, I hate to say that I, I don't root for whatever and I'm, I'm impartial, but it's a root for stories. So I'm rooting for you guys. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Make sure you play Gloria. Keep it going. <laughs> All right. We're going to play Gloria on your outro. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. I'm a- all right, thanks to Francesca Vangel uh, for her time and her candor on what was uh, an, an incredibly emotional moment uh, for uh, her family. And, uh, and now we'll talk to uh, another member of our family, Linda Cohn. All right, now it's time for Ask Linda. Linda Cohn from In the Crease, our good friend, doing the playoff thing, talking to... So what is this? You have a segment now with Melrose where he's giving out a cigar, like a victory cigar to people? Is that the yes, deal? Yeah, here it is. Is he gives out a victory cigar uh, when a series closes out, and he'll pick one player that has stood out for him that deserves his personal cigar uh, for his performance throughout the entire series. So, what are the logistics here? Is Barry mailing it to them? Do they get to smoke it with him? <laughs> you know what? I don't care about the details. It's really, but that's a valid question this... by you, Emily. That's why you're a great reporter. <laughs> This is a great info. We need to know. Does it get crushed in the mail? What is it packed (laughs) with? Have you ever shipped a cigar? I'm sure he doesn't. I'm sure he puts it in like one of those big poster tubes. But it's very intriguing because like knowing Barry, like him giving away one of his cigars is is like someone else giving away one of their children. Like it is a pretty important thing. I think. I think. uh, Am I breaking news here by saying it might be an act, and he may never give the cigar away? (laughs) But knowing Barry, who knows, right? I mean. He's so darn nice. He just might. We're going to need a rebuttal from him next week. Yeah. All right. Yes. Listen, Linda, Jordan Bennington, St. Louis Blues goalie, Jordan Winnington. My favorite thing from the from the last round, I think, might be when Pat Maroon scores the game-winning goal in overtime, the <laughs> Blues win game seven, say. and they have the video of Bennington just kind of like slowly leaving his crease and never actually showing any emotion as he leaves. Like yeah. if you needed a better indication and this guy's got ice water pumping through his entire body, it was that it was that scene right there. If anyone was a betting person, I mean that is the reason why you should put all your money on the blues to win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> that scene, that was that had me cracking up. It looked like an exhibition game in October or late September, <laughs> the way he went off the ice. No, it was great. This guy's always been so cool. So such a cool guy. Yeah, Jordan Winnington. I, when he came up in January and helped turn this team around after Craig Berube was hired as the interim head coach, by the way, because we all remember when Berube started, it wasn't like instantly great. No. Um, it was Bennington that, that calmed the seas. And uh, I just love this guy because uh, I just love his name, Greg and Emily, because they always remind me. I said it then, and I'll say it now. It reminds me of like, uh, you know, it, like a butler's name. Like somebody <laughs> writes, Jordan Bennington, can you get the door, please? Yeah, he's a butler. You know, that's a name for a butler, but he is a cool customer. Can I tell you my other great goalie moment that happened? Please. In this round? All right. Just how, you know, poor maligned Martin Jones when he was addressing the media yesterday. And by the way, some of those questions were just, not you, Greg, you were not involved in Oh, I was in the other room. But, yeah. Um, uh, no, yeah, you were in the other room. But, uh, you know, some moron was asking him stuff. And, but anyway, it, it just, you know, but then he just, he talked about, you know, because the guy started the question, was like, you know, it's been a rough playoff for you, consider. You know, it just was like all negative. And then his response with a straight face was like, listen, I'm I'm fine. I, it's what you guys are creating, but it's okay. Everything's good. You know, it was just like, 
diffusing it, you know, he, mm. you know, because he's just such a malign character. And, and I thought he was the most consistent shark in this series. He really was. So here's my question for you. Of the four, and I guess yes. it's really five if you count Carolina's two goaltenders uh, remaining in the playoffs, who would you pick? For me, I want Tuka Rask. I'm all in on Tuka this postseason. But I want to hear your thoughts. All right, I'm waiting for Tuka to implode because oh. I already think he's overachieved. Uh, but it's scary when a goalie is locked in like Tuka Rask. And I'm kidding, Boston fans, but it's really scary. <laughs> no, I think you're appealing to some of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. That's very true. I always tried to, you know, the Rebels. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm waiting for the implosion. I'm still not all in on the guy. I think it's, you know, if something might trigger him, one, you know, bad goal followed by a quick second bad goal, that's usually the case at Tuca. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I said when we look at all the guy, I mean, I I know Bennington's a rookie. I, I just, I'm not going to be a hypocrite now tell you that, you know, his comic in interior and exterior is not wooing me. I just love this guy. I really yeah. do. I mean, I don't see anything changing. And the guys that play in front of him are really helping the cause. I mean, they are. I love their backliners. I love the way they protect Bennington. And he doesn't face a lot of shots, and he makes timely saves. He really reminds me, guys, of Matt Murray when the oh. Pens were winning the two cups with Matt Murray. He really does. Because it's not like Matt Murray, you know, um, stoned in artillery, you know, from Game of Thrones. I mean, he would face 25, <laughs> 28 shots a game, if you remember those playoff games. But it was those timely saves he would make. And that's what Jordan Bennington reminds me of. Yeah, and the scary thing is that the Blues haven't need him to, needed him to steal a lot of games either. They just need him to play pretty well or play as well as the other guy across the ace as he did with Bishop. So uh, Yeah, it's, just don't let in the bad group. goal. And we've seen the bad goals allowed by other goalies during this postseason run. Not this much, Luca. All right, Linda, thank you so much. Everybody check out In the Crease every night, ESPN+. Plus. It's the best highlight show you could find for hockey. And occasionally, the lovely hosts of this podcast appear on the very show that we're talking about. And it's exactly. great. Exactly. I was just going to pump you guys up. Yeah. Greg oh, and Emily, sweet. very important appearances. You may go inside the dressing rooms mm-hmm. getting that getting great sound bite. Thank well, you. Well, you know, Linda, our goal is just it. one day to be deserving of a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we need videos of that. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. <laughs> thanks, guys. See ya. All right, thanks, Linda Cohen. Now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. It's the point in the show each week when we talk about the foibles of the hockey media. In this case kind of adjacent sports media, in this case, sports talk radio. This is something that happened on Wednesday uh, on the uh, Toucher and Rich show in uh, on 98.5, the Sports Hub in Boston. It's kind of a miracle we haven't touched on Boston sports talk radio in this segment mm-hmm. <laughs> until right now, but here we are. Uh, they had Chip Alexander, a just wonderful Southern gentleman, on to speak about the Carolina Hurricanes. He is a beat writer for the Raleigh News and Observer. He called in to talk about the Canes ahead of their series against the Bruins. And this is what happened. They traded for Nino Niederreiter. I can't listen to a guy with a, a southern accent talk about hockey. Did you sing up on him? Yep. I thought he was pretty good. Nope. I thought he was all right. Yeah. Nope. I Really? His southern accent, I can't take it. It's hockey and southern accents. You know, there are teams, hockey teams in the South. Many. 
In fact, there's, there's Florida, you which fly. has a couple of good teams. Dallas, at least one really good team. They don't have Southern accents. You got to fly a guy in from Canada. That was a move. That what? guy was pretty good. <laughs> Did you hang up on him? Could you imagine a guy with a Boston accent taking out someone else's accent on their show? It's rich. Could you on the rich that? show. Talk Could you imagine rich. that? Uh, I feel really bad for Chip because Chip's a knowledgeable guy. And, uh, yeah. You know what? It, it just points to me. These aren't clearly hockey guys, but it points to the exclusivity a lot of times in hockey where if someone doesn't look like us and sound like us, we are not welcoming. And that's just not cool. So not cool, dudes. But, but, it, but it is part of the um, citizenship test for Boston, from what I understand. Anyways, it's time for Puck Headlines. Dateline Edmonton. Ken Holland is your new general manager and president of all he surveys in Edmonton. This is a, ge- a great move uh, if you are somebody who is hoping someone can walk into that place and put up a firewall between a new regime of managers and the old boys network uh, that will never, ever, ever not be a part of the organization. You need a guy with a bit of cachet. One hopes that Ken Holland is the, that guy to do that. Although Bob Nicholson, the CEO of the team, kind of indicated that, like, hey, we don't need to blow up the whole thing. There's a lot of really smart guys here. You're like, oh, you've made the playoffs like once in a, you know, since Haley's Comet. Like, why are you doing this? Let the man just bring the people he wants and everybody just shuts up. Yeah, no, I'm all in on this move. Look, the one thing that Ken Holland said again and again in his intro press conference was stability. Uh, and this provides them some stability with a legitimate hockey voice. So. Kudos to him. Kudos to him for you know being able to go in there and say that he wants to bring it up change and let's see if he can do it. The only two things I didn't like about it, I didn't like the fact that his, you know, he wants to let young players percolate forever, like he did in Detroit, which is something you can definitely do when you have like Hall of Famers on your roster, which mm-hmm. they don't have in Edmonton. They just need bodies. Um, and and there wasn't really enough discussion about like the situation that they're in right now with the salary cap, with the with the no move clauses on on like five guys that you're trying to move. It's it's he's not really set up for success in the short term, and I think he's got about two years before Connor gets real salty about the situation up there. Uh, Dateline uh, Buffalo. Ricard Gromborg is a guy that you and I have discussed before on this show. He is the head coach of the Swedish national team. He is a super talented guy. He's been looking to get his crack at an NHL head coaching job. But he signed with Z- Z- ZSC, which is a, a team overseas, um, because he says it's the top job in Europe. And he also tells John Vogel of The Athletic that no NHL team wanted a coach with no prior NHL head coaching experience. My goal is to coach in the NHL sometime in the future. Just need to get a chance. So that tells you that like both the Ducks and, and the Sabres, who both have prominent openings, were both like... Yeah, we want to retread. We don't want to go out off the grid and hire the uh, the guy not from North America, which is a real disappointment. Yeah, you know what? For as much as I was talking about the exclusivity of us in hockey media and hockey, this is just another example. It's almost like xenophobia where it's the unknown. It's He's not North American. We don't know him, and that's why we don't want him. I think he would be a great coach, and I just think we need someone who's just a little bit of an outside-the-box thinker uh, to not say, let's just go with what we've done for the last 100 million years. Dateline Buffalo. Emily, you confirm reports that the Pagula Sports and Entertainment uh, organization severed its ties with the Buffalo Buttes of the National Women's Hockey League. Obviously, uh, this is uh, part and parcel of the 
quote unquote boycott of all the prominent women's players to not play professionally this season with the NWHL. Uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on this, uh, with regard to where this is all headed? I think it's, this is just another huge blow for the NWHL. I'm really, I know they are committed to having a league next season. I'm just so skeptical of how it's going to be able to happen when you have 200 players, including some of the best in the world who say they don't want to play in your league. You lose your, one of your biggest financial backers, the team that was supposed to be the gold standard of professional hockey, as Shan Zabato said on this very podcast. Uh, it's going to be tricky. So, uh, you know, and I think the last thing I'll say is there is a connection, a correlation with the fact that these women are protesting because they want the NHL to step in. And the Bagula step out. Of course, they are connected with the NHL because they're NHL owners. Indeed. Uh, Dateline Philadelphia. Michelle Terry and Mike Yo join Elaine Vigneault on an all-star uh, coaching staff for the Philadelphia Flyers. Emily, my question is, how large will the cigarette machine be inside the coach's room uh, for the Philadelphia Flyers? And will they only carry obscure Canadian brands? Uh, this is a great question. I feel like we might need to get our resident um, cigar expert, Barry Melrose, on to uh, give us a proper answer. But, yeah, a lot of experience on that team. Uh, I'm curious to see how they'll relate and resonate with the young players because uh, that's what Gordon seemed to do really well in his interim role. Mm-hmm. Finally, Dateline NHL Awards. Emily. We often talk about the entertainment aspect of the NHL Awards broadcast and whether, you know, it is good. I remember that magician last year that screwed up that trick. Uh, no, you'll never forget that. Introduced the Selkie Trophy as an example of things that aren't good. Here's something that is good, though. And props to our good friend Nerva at the NHL and Steve Mayer at the NHL. Keenan Thompson Love. of SNL will host the NHL Awards. I could not be more excited. He is one of the reasons that I still love watching SNL, really. He's an incredible genius, and I'm very excited for that. I want, as I said on Twitter, I want him to come. I don't want there to be another presenter on the show except for Keenan Thompson coming out as a different character each time. Steve Harvey, uh, Sha- Shaquille O'Neal. Charles Barkley. Uh, Charles Barkley. Um, David Ortiz. Um, Pierre Escargot from all that. Yes. And... Uh, and then, and then, uh, they don't actually hand out one of the trophies because, uh, they do the what's up with that bit from SNL and they just keep playing the song over and over again and never get to handing out the trophy. This very much appeals to me. This is, this is all I want. This is all I want in life. And I'm, we need to get Keenan on the show and hopefully we will. All right. Uh, now it's time for the rant line. Hi, Greg and Emily. I'm calling in because I'm a Devils fan who's absolutely had it with everybody trying to rain on our parade. Whether it's Vancouver fans with their delusional trade offers for the first overall pick, or whether it's the Canadian mainstream media talking all this smack about Taylor Hall's gonna leave, Taylor Hall's lost his smile, Ray Shiro can't keep Taylor Hall. You know what? I'm, I've had it. We've got a great young team. We're gonna have two six centers. And you know what? After we offer she- Mitch Marner to get him out of that hellhole of Toronto, this is going to be the team to beat in the East. That's what I got to say. That's all I got to tell you. Bye. Incredible rant. That was great. Look, I only have one reaction to that. Dad, you could just text me. <laughs> like, there's no reason for you to have to communicate with me through the rant line. <laughs> 
right. That's ESPN and Ice for this week. I'm Greg Wyshynski. You can find my stuff on ESPN. Uh, read a, wrote a, a, a fun little piece last night about Gabe Landis Cog taking full responsibility for all the, uh, uh, offside foibles. Captain Emo. I'm Emily Kaplan. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Emily M. Kaplan. You can watch me get muted on Around the Horn on Friday. And, uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.